Hi, my name is Trevor O'Keefe, and I'm the pastor at Olive Branch Christian Fellowship. We're a Jesus-loving Bible church who are committed to studying the words of Jesus, walking in the ways of Jesus, and partnering in the mission of Jesus. Thanks for joining us on that journey today. With that, let's get into the Word of God this morning. Amen? Why don't you open a Bible, Mark 16. Chapter 16, we are in the absolute home stretch. Today we finish Mark's gospel. Next week we'll do a bit of review. It's been a long journey, and I'm going to ask Miss Eden, because you've already been introduced to her, to read this passage to you. So Mark chapter 16. Now when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices, that they might come and anoint him. Very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. And they said among themselves, Who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, for it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a long white robe, sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him, as he said to you. So they went out quickly and fled from the tomb, for they trembled and they were amazed. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him, as they mourned and wept. And when they heard that he was alive and he had been seen by her, they did not believe. After that, he appeared in another form to two of them as they walked and went into the country. And they went and told it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. Later, he appeared to the eleven as they sat at the table, and he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will follow those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak with new tongues, they will take up serpents, and if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them, and they will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. So then after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. Amen. Thanks, Eden. It was just a few months ago that I last saw a headline about a snake-handling church, which you've probably seen the headlines or stories before yourself. Uh, it's a trend amongst a very small, select group of hyper-Pentecostal churches that find themselves way out in the boonies in the Appalachian Mountains. Uh, it's only been lasting, this tradition of handling poisonous snakes, about a hundred years in this circle. And that's really what they're known for, the snake handling church, where they handle deadly snakes, venomous snakes, and then even reportedly at different times would even drink poison intentionally. And the headlines that come out about them, as you would imagine, are never, they're never positive. They're never highlighting something good or some happy moment. 
They're unfortunately always underscoring another unnecessary death of someone who is determined to showcase their faith publicly by lifting up a deadly viper and proving that their faith would overcome even if they were bitten by that snake. There's an estimated 150 churches in the U.S. that practice this as a sign and an expression of their great faith in Jesus, lifting snakes publicly, uh, even the poisonous ones. Ironically, and really quite tragically, uh, these churches are dying off as their pastors and leaders are dying in their gatherings while refusing medical aid after being bitten by these snakes. Now, I would imagine if you're trying to picture what this looks like, and you're welcome for not showing you a video of their gatherings, then there's probably, if you're picturing it, there's probably a, a collective discomfort that you and I, that we together are feeling when we even try to imagine someone doing this or even start to question why they would do it, why they would handle snakes inside a church gathering. And that's really what my assumption is, is that all of us right now, as you think about someone choosing to do that or a church gathering like this, including that, all of us are probably questioning, questioning why in the world would you choose to do that? It's a simple question, right? Why would they do that? Well, the simple answer is because they believe the Bible. That's why they do it. And these signs, verse 17, will follow those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will take up serpents and they will drink. And if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means harm them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. So bring out the snakes and let's get weird. Because that's what it's saying, right? You see, today we step into one of the most hotly debated and widely controversial passages in all of the Bible, and the contrary, or, or the, the controversy, the controversial nature of this text is not a new thing. It, it actually reaches back in church history as far as the second century, where people had very strong opinions about these final verses in Mark's gospel, and those differing opinions actually don't have much to do with the snakes, it's a broader look at it that we're going to take today. You see, we've walked through the first eight verses of Mark 16, but today we talk about, in a cluster, the last 12 from Mark's gospel. And I've given the title of this message, A Cutting Room Floor. And you'll see why as we walk through this, but you might understand what a cutting room floor is. It's a term that would be used in the film industry back before things were digital, where someone was literally taking film off a spool and was splicing scenes together. And as they would trim or decide to cut a scene, they would literally clip the film and the, the film would end up on the cutting room floor. It's now a term that's used, though, outside of the film industry. It's speaking or referring to any creative work where you have unused uh, information or unused uh, creative process that doesn't make the final cut, that doesn't last all the way through. Hence, it's referred to as the cutting room floor. And what we're going to do today is talk about what didn't make the final cut in Mark's gospel. And then next week, we'll look back over Mark's gospel and talk about maybe some of the things that didn't make it into our time here or things that I really want to make sure that you didn't miss from our journey all the way through Mark's gospel that's taken us over a year to do together. And I, I'm going to forewarn you real quick. This is our third week in a row that you might feel like this is more cerebral than maybe we're used to doing. Because last week we talked about the resurrection, the week before we talked about the burial of the body of Christ. And now we're talking about the ending to the story of Christ himself. 
And so this might feel a bit more cerebral, but I feel like this is an important journey for you to take with me as we talk through these things. And I'll also tell you personally, I'm so very thankful that the God of the Bible does not discourage us. In fact, he encourages us to engage our mind. There are other faith groups that they're they're push on you if you were someone who went and was a part of that religious movement. They would say that the way that you will know that this is real and true, the way that you fact check it is you pray for a burning in your bosom. You pray for a feeling in your gut. And if you have that feeling, because the archaeology is not going to prove it, because our ancient scrolls will not prove it, these old documents are not going to back it, you have to have a gut feeling. Christianity is so different than that. God in the Old Testament says, come, let us reason together about these things. In the New Testament, he says, this is your reasonable service to give your life to Christ as a living sacrifice. It's literally translated, this is your logical or rational conclusion that you, that you would draw. I love that God invites us to come and think. And that's what I'm inviting you to do. So next week, a little less nerdy. Today, pretty nerdy. But buckle up. It's an important journey for you and I to go on together. So for today, there's four questions that I want you to consider about this text and how it all ends. And the first is, what in the world does this mean? What Jesus is saying here, what's recorded for us, what does this mean? And then does it belong on a cutting room floor somewhere? And then a third thing, what are the implications of that for us today? And then a fourth and final thing is we'll talk about what is our response though? What's our response to how Mark's gospel ends? So first and foremost, if you're taking notes, write it down. What does it mean? What does this mean, these final statements, especially verses 9 through verse 20? Is this instruction for Jesus' followers to do things like handle poisonous snakes? Is Jesus saying here that these things are evidence of someone's true salvation? That if you're truly saved, you'll drive out demons, you'll speak in tongues, you'll handle snakes, you'll drink poison, and you'll oftentimes find yourself miraculously healing individuals? Or is there a third option for how we'd understand this passage? You see, the end of Mark 16 gives details on the resurrection that you find in other Gospels. It also tells us that Jesus reveals himself to his disciples as we read in other Gospels. It records even his final commission, the one last commandment that Jesus will give to his followers. It's the same that you find in other Gospels. But then it shifts gears and gives us a list of things that you don't see echoed in the other Gospel accounts. These are things, though, that you will later see playing out in the narrative of the book of Acts and the life of the early church. Things like the early church speaking in tongues, Acts chapter 2. Things like healing the sick, Acts chapter 3. Signs in Acts 2 and in Acts 5. It refers to the apostles and how they performed many, God used them to do many signs and wonders to prove the power of the gospel. They would cast demons by Acts chapter 9. They're driving them out of a little girl in Philippi, and they end up arrested because of it. They even have an encounter with poison and serpents in the book of Acts. It's at the end of the story. You might remember Acts 28. Paul's on his way towards Rome, and you remember that they are shipwrecked because of a storm on an island called Malta, and it says that he went collecting firewood, grabs a bunch of wood. When he throws it onto the fire, what just looks like a bunch of dry wood, all of a sudden the heat exposed something that was hidden inside of that big bundle of wood he threw on the fire, and it was a serpent. And remember that that viper lunges out and latches onto Paul's hand. The terminology really leaves you with imagery as if Paul lifted his hand away from the fire and the thing was still attached. 
And the natives, which just means non-Greek speaking people, they look at Paul, and I'll quote it to you. They said, no doubt this man is a murderer whom though he escaped by sea, yet justice will not allow him to live. But then Paul shook off the creature, again quoting Acts 28, this is verse 5, into the fire, and Paul suffered no harm. However, they were expecting that he would swell up and suddenly fall over dead. But after they had looked for a long time, watching to see if he die, and saw no harm come to him, then they changed their minds and said, he must be a god. Listen, this is the only encounter that's recorded for us in Scripture, though, of Jesus' followers running into snakes and poison. Now, some might disagree with me and say, but Trevor, I remember when Jesus sent out the 70 with authority that when he did, they came back so excited that they were able to heal and drive out demons and that Jesus said to them that he had given them authority to trample on serpents and scorpions. And so clearly that's a reference to Jesus saying that they are immune to a sting of a scorpion or to the bite of a serpent. Well, really not at all, because that passage is talking about the, the powers that exist in our world that the, are the forces of evil that are, are used in imagery of a serpent from Genesis all throughout the Bible. So to give them Authority over serpents and scorpions, he's saying over these dark and evil spirits because he says right after that, don't rejoice that you have authority over these evil spirits. Rejoice that your name is in the Lamb's book of life. It's not saying that we have this supernatural immunity to these things, though. So here's your real question, though. Well, what does this all mean? Is this instruction for us? Is this something God expects us to do to handle snakes? Or is Jesus saying that these things are the evidence? If you're really saved, then demons will be driven out from, from you every time you address one. Then tongues will be spoken by all of you. Then serpents will not affect you. Poison can be drank by you. And healings will always happen coming from you. Well, when you look at the statement made about serpents and poison, it's clear that it does not instruct you to drink it or to handle it. If there's a point being made, it's simply that Jesus told his 11 closest friends that if you're following me and if you're fulfilling my commission that I'm giving you, then nothing can stop you because I am for you. And please hear me. These signs that are listed here, these five things, were not about proving that a believer was a real believer. They were signs that were a demonstration that the gospel had real power as it went out into new communities, which is exactly what we see happen in the book of Acts, that God would reveal the great power of the gospel as they would preach that there were signs and wonders and miraculous things that took place that showed the power of the message of the gospel to transform. This is not proof of a believer being a real believer. No, these were demonstrations of the gospel's power as it would land in a new community in place. Now, I think we'd be really wise to let the Bible provide its own commentary on the Bible by looking at the rest of Scripture's instruction to us on something like this, a topic like, should we be handling snakes or drinking poison or those sorts of things? And so think back with me for a moment, just a moment, to Jesus' temptation. When our enemy, the serpent, remember Satan himself, comes and says to Jesus, throw yourself down, for it's written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. He was saying, jump off the cliff and God will catch you. He even quotes scripture to Jesus. But you remember, Jesus responds and says, on the other hand, it is also written that you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. The serpent here 
Satan. He is quoting from Psalm 91, where it says that he will give his He will give command of his angels concerning you to guard you in all of your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the cobra. You will trample the great lion and the serpent beneath your feet. This was a temptation, though, from Satan. This was not a test from the Father. The Father was not testing the faith of Jesus in this moment. As Jesus stood at the edge of a cliff, No, the serpent was tempting him. And Jesus would respond and quote from Deuteronomy saying, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So why would we think that we are any different than Jesus and ought to test God by doing something reckless? It would make no sense. Another unique and interesting piece to this is that Psalm 91 was believed to be speaking of God's protection, yes, against physical dangers, but also against spiritual demonic forces. Okay, here's a nerdy fun fact of the day for you. In 1948, when the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, part of what they found in the rabbinic writings that were a part of the Essenes group in their worldview is that they had quite a bit of writing about exorcism and demonic activity, and they listed four of the Psalms in their ancient writings that have been unearthed from the Dead Sea Scrolls that they referred to as being about demonic forces and how to respond to them and God's power to work against them, and Psalm 91 is one of them that they believed and saw through a first century lens that the, the, the contemporaries of Jesus believed that this was speaking of God's authority over Satan himself. So to encounter, if all of that's true, to encounter snakes and poison and not be harmed is a statement then about God's promised protection of his people from our enemy, not instructing people to play with snakes or to drink on some poison. So maybe, all that to say, maybe the way we ought to read this final statement was not at all supposed to be viewed as instruction for the church, which shouldn't surprise any of you. Instead, it's meant to be maybe a word of encouragement that God is for you and the things that stand against you, he has great power and authority over. Or maybe there's a third option. And the third option is that maybe we weren't meant to read this at all. See, we ask the question, what does this mean? But our second question is, does this even belong? Or does this belong on a cutting room floor somewhere? You see, you probably noticed as Miss Eden read the text to you this morning that most of your Bibles, I would even venture to guess all of your Bibles, have an asterisk that's right next to verse 9, if you look down at your own Bible to see it, with a notation there that will say that verses 9 through 20 are not found in some of the oldest of manuscripts implying to you that maybe this wasn't intended or even written by Mark for you to read at all. But here's my question today. Which makes you more uncomfortable now, snake handling or the fact that you don't know if this was supposed to be in your Bible? So take a deep breath and think about this with me. There are so many religious groups who love to to try their very best to hide their quirks, flaws, and black eyes Whereas the Christian faith prints theirs right in the text itself. I mean, think about this as a contrast. There are so many religious groups who who are quick to hide their quirks, their flaws, their proverbial black eyes. They want to push them behind a curtain. Whereas Christianity prints theirs right in the text itself. For the Mormon church, they've rewritten much of their old traditions, especially when it comes to people of color. 
Because until 1978, they taught that people of color were, were embodying the curse of God that was given out to uh, the descendants of Cain, and that to marry outside of your race as a white person, to marry someone and be in a mixed-race relationship was something that could not be atoned for, and that people of color were not permitted into the priesthood. Until 1978, when a lawsuit came against them, and then all of a sudden God changed his mind and the church changed their practice. If you look at Mormon doctrine and history, the Mormon church is no longer denying the fact that even for Joseph Smith, their founder, he had dozens of women that he married. Some of them were already married. Some were even married to his friends, but then he would marry them as well, some of whom were young girls. In fact, the Mormon church will now admit that it's documented history that one of them was as young as 14 years old. You see, one of the books even found inside of the Pearl of Great Price, which is one of the books that the Mormon church will tell you is authoritative and inspired by God. One of the books you find inside of it is the Book of Abraham. And the Book of Abraham was translated very uniquely. According to Joseph Smith, he had found a traveling salesman who was selling some mummies and ancient Egyptian papyrus that had hieroglyphics on it. And that he said as he, as he looked at that text, he was able to translate that text. And what he found was the secret story of Abraham that added to the biblical narrative. Now, those ancient hieroglyphics couldn't be read by people in the 1800s here in the U.S. and were lost for a period of time and then found again and seen to match up exactly against photographs and depictions of those hieroglyphics that are still found today in the Book of Mormon. So we know that we have the right ones, and now we have people around the world who can translate those Egyptian hieroglyphics, and what they speak of is not Abraham. What they speak of is a guy by the name of Osiris Hor, and it's his death records and burial instructions has nothing to do with Abraham. The church's official statement then is that this papyri, again quoting from the website, is the writings of Abraham while he was in Egypt. It's penned by his own hand, called the book of Abraham, I'm quoting from them, written by his own hand upon papyrus. They still claim that this is actually recording the story of Abraham, and what they'll tell you now is that when he saw it, God shifted his eyes and gave him understanding of a secret message that was there that no one else can see, even though that message is not contained there. Listen, every religion seems to have their proverbial black eyes. It's, it's even for Muhammad, the founder of Islam. In the year 630, he would go on a series of bloody military conquests where he was determined to go back to Mecca, the city that had rejected him as a false prophet, and conquer it on conquest, even at the loss of life. These are the people, this is the village, this is the community he grew up in, and he was so determined to go back and slaughter these people for driving him out that he captured the city. Three years later, at the age of 63, he'd have a sudden but natural death, dying in the arms of uh, one of his wives, Aisha. And that young wife who he died in, his in the arms of was one of several wives that he had. He had more than a dozen wives, but his own teachings that he said came from God required that you could only have at tops four wives, and you could not have any of those wives be under the age of puberty before you took them as a wife and knew them. And yet the woman that he died in the arms of was someone he had married at six years old. It's twisted. Their way of defending that act is saying that she was nine before they began having sex together. I watched a video by a Muslim cleric who said that the extreme heat and high temperatures created an early onset of puberty for this young girl, and that's what made all of this acceptable. That's outrageous. 
Listen, here's my point in telling you all of this, is that many religions, movements, and groups are quick to hide. They want to suppress the quirks, the flaws, the proverbial black eyes, the skeletons in the closet. But for me, I cannot follow a movement that has a God that changes his mind when wrapped up in a lawsuit for racism, much less follow a religion that at its very core was a racist movement. That the, the roots of it were racist and, and exclusive and pushing out people of color. I can't embrace a religious book that was translated from something that tells a completely different story. I can't adhere to the teachings of a leader of a religion that doesn't adhere even to his own supposed message from God, especially when it's regarding his sexual appetite. Nor can I follow a pedophile who sexually exploits and assaults children or one who retaliates and kills people who reject and embarrass him. And these are the black eyes and flaws that go unadvertised of other religious movements. These are the other things or the things that other religious movements try to bury in their backyard. In contrast to that, the biblical writers don't hide their flaws at all, do, do they? In fact, Christianity and its Bible translators, they don't, dis, they don't conceal the discrepancies and questions that are found in your Bible at all. It's a full disclosure policy within Christianity. There's no secrets or hidden issues that are only discovered if you dig deep enough. If you go on the dark web, then you find the dirt. You know, I had a discussion with a man several years ago, and I really care for this man, and, and he was, he's confused and has had a very hard life, but, and because of that was, was very, very paranoid, and he started to tell me, I, I know the truth about Christianity. I know it all. I know what they only teach to Christian leaders in those closed-door seminaries and Bible colleges. I know what they teach there. And I sat there thinking, I've been in some of those schools. Like, I know too. Can I tell you the scandal that I learned in Bible college? Genuinely, the scandal I learned is the scandal, the great Christian scandal is called the grace of God. That's the scandal of Christianity. That the grace and love of God is so powerful, so amazing, that it feels scandalous to really believe it, to preach it. It feels dangerous even to communicate it to people because we're afraid that they'll abuse it and use it as a license to sin. And that's why Paul would write in the book of Romans and say, God forbid that thought ever even come into existence. We ought not to do that. The reason he's saying that is because he knows that this is such a scandalous and dangerous thing that we preach that we are so, yes, deeply broken, far worse than we'd thought, but simultaneously far more loved than we had ever hoped or dreamed. That's the gospel. And that the unmerited favor of God rests upon us simply by faith in Jesus. My friend, though, was sitting there thinking and telling me that the Christian message has a hidden agenda and a conspiracy that it's hiding beneath the surface. But I love that nothing's hidden. Even something like this in Mark 16 that's potentially very confusing for people. I like that it's a full disclosure policy. So talk through this with me real quick. So what are we supposed to think then about something like this? Well, this is something that I think does take some time to study and to work through and to look through history. Something that I've tried to do as I've read, and I'll tell you that few commentaries even will write about verses 9 through 20 because so many commentator, commentators and writers and, and 
uh, linguists will all throw this out saying that they don't have confidence that this was meant to be there in the first place. And you can listen, and I've done this even in the last week, to several uh, different lectures that are done on this by Bible scholars, including one by a man named Bill Mounts, who sat on the translation committee for both the NIV and ESV translations. And I'll just tell you from the onset, I agree with his and many others' opinion that these last several verses from verse 9 through 20, that they were not penned by Mark, and that in his original first copy of his gospel that they were not present on the page, but were added later after the completion of his gospel by some scribe some time later who was probably very well-intentioned but probably should not have put them there. Okay, now push pause. Where are we? We're talking about what does this mean? Don't worry. You won't find poisonous snakes slithering around here anytime soon. But does it belong on a cutting room floor rather than in my Bible? Well, think through, and these are some important terms, but there are a couple of different nerd terms that I'd love to throw out for you to think through as we talk about the origins of Scripture and manuscripts specifically. When we talk about original and copies of the ancient text of the Bible, there's two terms that are important for you to know. The first is autograph. There's only one autograph of the Gospel of Mark. It's the OG. It's the first copy, first edition, written by Mark's own hand. It's Mark writing the memoirs, you remember, of Peter, who traveled extensively with Jesus as one of the twelve. There's one autograph. There are many manuscripts. These are ancient handwritten copies of the document written by uh, priests and by scribes who were so very meticulous in how they copied it so that it could be distributed to the early church and even all the way 2,000 years later to you and to me. And although we don't have the original autograph of the biblical text, remember the autograph is the first copy don't miss this. We might not have that first copy. I would say it's probably good we don't. Think how many people would worship those. Think what a, what a weird dynamic that would create. Those first copies probably wore out and were replaced and discarded after becoming worn out. We do, however, have very, very early copies. In fact, I've told you many times, Mark was believed to be written in the 60s AD. And beginning in 2014, there's controversial stories about fragments of a manuscript of Mark's gospel that were found inside a mummy mask that were dated back to as early as the 80s or 90s AD. Even if you throw those out because it is controversial, you still have early copies from the gospels that are, are reportedly from the second century, within a hundred years of the life of Christ. So clearly, this gospel was written and circulated soon after the events actually took place. This is not recording just folklore for you. But more impressive than the date of those early manuscript copies, think with me, is the sheer volume of early handwritten manuscript copies of the Bible. And let me illustrate for you why that's important. My mom makes this really, really good, very incredible, very impressive, extremely memorable chocolate chip cheesecake with an Oreo crust. It's so good, in fact, that nearly 20 years ago, before Lindsay and I were even married, my mom hand wrote the recipe for me on a three by five card that I still have. And I, I make this cheesecake from time to time through the years for our friends and family. It's even rumored to be the reason why Lindsay said yes to my request that she'd marry me. It's so good that when our friends have it, oftentimes they ask for a copy of the recipe. And so again, I take a piece of paper and I begin to handwrite the recipe for them. Now, what if I did this for you this year? 
Like what if next week you showed up and I had handwritten a copy of that uh, that recipe, looking at the original, writing copies, and send them to each of your homes this week? What if you tried the cheesecake and you were impressed too? So this year with your Christmas card, you did the same thing, got out your three by five card stack, looked at the recipe I sent you, and then began to copy it meticulously, line by line, and send it with each of your Christmas cards to all of your friends and family. What if the, the legend and love for that cheesecake grew to a cult following as, as the amazing gift it is was experienced by people all over the globe? What if you hit fast forward for a couple hundred years and in the future the History Channel does a special on my mom's chocolate chip cheesecake with an Oreo crust? Let's be honest, this is the kind of stuff the History Channel is actually making right now. It's some of the stuff, man. I t- I'm, this is not history. Why, are we, why is this called the History Channel? But what if they did that? And what if a part of that was that they wanted to do a story on it, talking about what an amazing gift it is, not just highlighting the world's love for that cheesecake, but they also wanted to do a deep dive investigative report to make sure that humanity really has the actual recipe of my mom's famous cheesecake. And the the reporters would be sent out across the globe Thousands of handwritten copies of that recipe that are things that they would begin to amass and bring together to a central place to go over. They, they find them in all different languages on several different continents. Some of them, they, they can tell, were quickly copied, very sloppy. Others, though, my goodness, they belonged over mantles and homes. They were meticulously copied with the most beautiful of script and gold leaf around the edges. It was ornate and beautiful and clearly something that was really valuable to people. But as they all sat down together, they started to see that some of them had some discrepancies. You see, some of the recipes said stir, while others said mix. Most mentioned to use two tablespoons of vanilla, and others said it was two teaspoons and not tablespoons. Oh, you you guess. Don't second guess mom's cheesecake, mocking the vanilla. Some even give added descriptions. Like that when you crush the Oreos, you're supposed to put it in a Ziploc bag and put it on the ground, and then as if you're treading grapes in a fine winery, (laughs) feel them squish beneath your feet. Listen, in the end, after all of that work, could that reporter be confident after all their research that they held a good and true account of how to make the world's greatest cheesecake, even if they didn't have the original autograph? Could they have a great sense of confidence that they know what that recipe was? Well, most all of us, I would assume, would agree that we could rest at ease with a very high level of confidence that they did, in fact, hold that because they could look at all of these manuscripts, all these ancient copies of that recipe and go back and see the oldest of ones and compare them against each other and see how accurate they are and then look at the changes that have happened over time and undo some of those little changes that came up over time. You see, you're supposed to carry now, that's probably too long illustration that probably made you very hungry and ready to get out of here, but carry that over to your confidence in the accuracy of the Bible itself. I mean, consider the biblical manuscripts. Earliest textual evidence for the New Testament we have is copied within the first hundred years after the original would have been penned. And we have over 25,000 partial or complete copies of the New Testament that are ancient handwritten documents. We have twice that many when you include the quotes of early church fathers. Some of those quotations were written within 20 to 30 years of when the original autograph was first penned, with almost an additional 20,000 manuscript copies of the Old Testament. 
pushing the total number of manuscripts of your Bible to around 45,000 of them. Now, what I'm trying to tell you is that you can be certain that we know that we have what was originally written down, that the Bible is accurate to the author's intent because of the plethora of manuscripts that prove it. And I believe we can know with confidence that what we have is true and trustworthy because of the prophetic nature of the text, because the Dead Sea Scrolls are dated from before the time of Christ, proving that they were written before he arrived and that he would fulfill all of those prophecies that are found inside of them. Don't let me lose you. I love that your Bible is the first place to inform you that there's minor discrepancies in some of those manuscripts. You see, some of those manuscripts in the New Testament have differences and distinctions, two different kinds of differences and distinctions. Some of them are unintentional, like little spelling things or punctuation, and some of them are intentional differences, where difficult words are sometimes given an explanation immediately after being used, or some Old Testament references and quotations are given clarification. Now, I'm telling you all of this for this reason, to affirm your trust in this book, not to undermine it. You see, I love that Christianity doesn't hide its quirks or issues, that there's no conspiracy. Instead, it lives with a full disclosure policy. Now, why are we talking about this? Why are we talking about this in church? Because you should hear it here and not on that geo. Because if it's in the text, we ought to talk about it and be willing to look at it. I think, as notated in your Bible, that the end of Mark 16 was not in Mark's original autograph. I say that because, as noted in your Bibles, the two earliest and best preserved Greek manuscripts don't include it. Manuscripts that do include them in the future, many of those have a disclaimer that's given with it. Eusebius, the early church leader and historian who became the pastor of the church in Caesarea Maritime in 314 AD, his writings noted that it was not original but was still included. Jerome, who wrote, or I should better state, he translated the Latin Vulgate in 382 AD, which was predominantly used as the Bible translation in circulation around the world for a thousand years, said that most Greek manuscripts he used didn't even include this longer ending, indicating that he also didn't believe that it was authentic or original. Even modern textual criticism, which is the nerdiest field of all in this whole discussion, they look and say there's things that are true about Mark's writing style that are Markisms, they refer to them as, and from them they believe that Mark was a second, this, this language, Greek language for Mark, was a second language for him because of the simplicity that he writes with and some of the quirkiness that he specifically words things out. These Markisms are things that you and I have seen again and again, like his use of the word immediately. At every trans transition point, he just says, and immediately. It doesn't mean that Jesus ran from one place to the next because sometimes we're skipping over months or even a year time. But it's like his lead-in, he didn't know what to say, so he's just like, immediately, immediately. And again and again, you find it. Well, the ending shifts and is a far more complex Greek and does not include any of those 21 different Markisms that linguists are looking at. Okay, now take a deep breath. We're almost done. Our best guess is that at some point, this ending was added by others who were well-intentioned, probably a scribe or team of scribes in the middle of the second century, and that was added to help to round out the story because the story, if it ends in verse 8, ends incredibly abruptly, doesn't it? So they went out quickly and fled from his tomb. For they trembled and were amazed 
And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. The add-on seems to largely be taken from the accounts and the narrative of the book of Acts to talk about what is seen in the life of the early church. My hope is that, that snakes don't make you more uncomfortable than a notation like this in your Bible. But it's an important thing for us to talk through. So what does this mean? Does it belong on the cutting room floor? Maybe. What are the implications, though? This is the important thing. What are the implications for me today? For you today, as this sits on your lap? If I've lost you, come back, because this is really important. Here's where I just make the statement. Here's what I'm saying. Here's what I'm not saying. I believe absolutely in the trustworthiness of my Bible. And I believe that the original autographs were God-breathed, inspired, infallible, perfect documents. And I believe that our modern Bibles are incredibly accurate versions of those original God-inspired documents. And I'm thankful that when there's a question or debate about accuracy, it's printed on the page. I like that. Now, the big scary question that maybe is already lurking in the back of your mind is, oh my gosh, how much does this happen, though? Tell us, is this happen a lot? Well, no, it doesn't happen a lot, that things are added or changed in your Bible. In fact, there's only two big passages in the New Testament. This is one of them. The other one is in John chapter 8, and it's the woman who's caught in the act of adultery. There's a notation as you, as you get to the very last verse in John chapter 7, there's a notation in your Bible that says the earliest copies we have of the gospel do not include this. And there are early Christian authors, early church fathers, who said that it was not a part of John's gospel, but was added later because it was such a well-known story and beloved story of Jesus that churches chose, the early church chose to add it after the fact. Now, with that information in mind, will I read it? Absolutely. Will I enjoy it? Sure will. Will I teach from it? I would, but with two caveats. One being that I would teach it saying what I just told you about its history. And the second being, I would probably not introduce any new doctrine from it. But thankfully, there is no new doctrine in it. Like, well, and this is that one passage that talks about the fourth member of the Trinity. Like, there's, there's nothing like that there. So it doesn't introduce new doctrine. Okay, real quick, Miss Ruth is going to throw these other three places in the New Testament, because there's only five total, where there are discrepancies like this. And the other three are very small, but these are the only other noteworthy ones. The first one is Matthew chapter 6, verse 13, the end of the Lord's Prayer. You've probably seen this. In an old King James Bible, it includes, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. But there's a notation next to it in many of your Bibles that say this isn't in the oldest of manuscripts. But it does preach, doesn't it? No, if we're going to pray, it, does, it is a beautiful thing for us to pray, but it probably was not a part of what Jesus originally communicated. John chapter 5, beginning in verse 3, this is the description of why the lame man sitting by the pool of Bethesda is seated there. Because for us, we don't know why they'd be there. And then it leans into the folklore saying, he was waiting there for the moving of the waters. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then when whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Maybe you've thought before, that's a weird thing. Did, that, did an angel really come down and do that? We don't know. He's t the, the scribes at some point add that detail in, knowing that the further time is getting away from it, that people are uncertain of and unaware of that old, old traditions or, or the, the superstition that an angel would do that and that people needed to dive into the water, which for me sounds like a terrible idea. I'm paralyzed and I'm rolling into a body of water. 
But ascribe out of that to give you some understanding as to why someone would make a decision like that because of the folklore and legend that this is what's happening. The other one, the, the final one in the New Testament is from 1 John chapter 5, beginning in verse 7, which makes a reference to and gives an explanation of the Trinity. Now, hear me say this. This is not the only place in your Bible that preaches on, teaches on the Trinity. If it were the only place, we might be in trouble because it says it this way. For there are three that bear witness in heaven. Here's the add in the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one, and the, there are three that bear witness on earth, that was the add-in, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree as one. None of these things, these little add-ins that were added to give clarity to us, change or endanger my faith in Scripture or in Jesus at all. So our question is, after all this information and, and troubling fun facts, can I still trust a Bible? Undoubtedly, well over 99.9% of your Bibles without question or debate, exactly as the original autograph would read, which is pretty amazing for a 2,000-year-old doctrine or, or document, the remaining less than a fraction of a percent accounts for non-essential sentence structure and not in any way rewrites, challenges, or undermines or questions my Christian theology or doctrine. It's simple things that you'll find, little nuanced things that are always noted in your footnotes, Little manuscripts that record things like, then Jesus went up to pray in the mountains, and another manuscript might say, and then the Jesus went up to pray. Either way, those little nuances are still translated the same way in your Bible. Those minor discrepancies in no way change or challenge my view of this book or what I believe about Jesus. So again, what am I saying? What am I not saying? What I'm saying is I absolutely believe in the trustworthiness of the Bible. And I believe that the original autographs were absolutely divinely inspired, God-breathed, absolutely perfect and infallible documents. And I believe our modern Bibles are incredibly accurate versions of those original documents. And I'm thankful when there's question or debate about their accuracy, it's printed right on the page. I like that. Okay, here's how we land the plane. So what's our personal response then to the end of Mark's gospel? Well, my hope is that it would be really renewed trust in the integrity of the Christian movement throughout the ages and trust in the trustworthiness of the Bible. But my other hope, if it ends in verse 8, I mean, think about this. If the actual ending is in verse 8, where the women leave in fear, it does feel a bit disjointed and odd. Where the end feels like, oh, and now the, the closest friends of Jesus, the story ends with them being afraid of Jesus. So they went out quickly and fled from the tomb for they trembled and were amazed and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. I think it's a perfect ending, masterfully chosen and sculpted by Mark. And here's why I think that. I don't think fear is always a negative thing. It's an emotional experience that, that we have when the weight of the moment hits us. And sometimes that's the sound of a dog chasing us. The weight of the moment hits us, the rush of adrenaline and fear comes with it. And yes, that's negative, but it's not always. I was thinking this week about the, the day that I proposed to Lindsay, I remember having set everything in motion for how it was going to all play out. And I, I set it all up and then knew now the clock is starting and she's picked up now and next she'll meet me here. And I knew step by step where it was going. And all of a sudden, as I sat alone in my car for a moment, 
all of a sudden I found myself beginning to tremble. Now I'll tell you, it wasn't because I thought, oh crap, I've gone too far. There's no way to turn back now. It's already set in motion. Now I'm done for, biggest mistake of my, I wasn't, it wasn't that kind of fear hitting me in the moment. It was because I realized the weight of the moment. I'd been busy planning. I finally stopped, knew it was all in order. <sighs> Took a breath knowing that the limousine had picked her up at her house and was gonna meet me downtown where everything else would ensue for our evening together. I knew as I felt the weight of the moment that this was a powerful and beautiful moment that's worth celebrating. That's why the psalmist would write in Psalm 130 that because of God's forgiveness, he says that we fear him. Now, why would we be afraid of someone who's forgiven us? Well, it's not saying that we fear and run and hide because we're afraid of getting slapped around. Some translations beautifully open it up, saying that because of your forgiveness, we're in awe and reverence of you and we serve you. You see, even in Mark's gospel, this word fear, phobeo, it's from Greek to Latin to English, where we'd get phobia, the, the experience of fear. It's used all throughout Mark's gospel, 13 times in 12 different verses. He uses it several times, leaving people on a cliffhanger. So that they're feeling the weight of emotion, living in the tension, and having to decide for themselves how they'll move forward from that tension. You see, seven times he uses this word in his gospel as a normal negative expression, talking about how Herod feared John or the religious leaders feared if they took John that the crowds would turn on them because the crowds believed he was a prophet. They feared how they'd in interact with Jesus because they feared the people and how the people would respond. It's how we think of fear. But then the other way that Mark utilized the word for fear, it paints a picture of biblical fear that's healthy, that's right, that's good. It's when the demon was driven from the man into the swine, and it says that the whole village found themselves very afraid in that moment. They were awestruck and amazed by what Jesus had done. It's Jesus healing the woman of the issue of blood for 12 years, and it talks about her approaching him with great fear and trembling. She realized she now stood before someone who is far greater than she had even imagined. It's Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, transfigured before his friends, and one of his friends speaking up and saying, let's just make camp here. And one of the other friends says, he only said that because we were all very afraid in that moment. Where they were amazed and dumbfounded and didn't know what to think. It's what was said on the boat when a massive storm raged and Jesus laid asleep. It says that they feared exceedingly when Jesus stood up and just said, shh. And all of a sudden the sea went calm. There was a fear because they recognized that Jesus was more than they had initially thought that he was. And that fear was a good thing. It was a reverential awe. They were dumbfounded and amazed by him, not cowering in the corner, trying to dodge him, slapping at them. And it's the same as being said of these women in this moment who are left in fear. They come to realize that, that, that they're starting to see that this Jesus who they'd been with for three years, whom they'd known personally, whom they had been cared for by intimately, whom they loved so deeply. When they saw an empty tomb, they came to see that he was far more unique and special than they had ever thought possible. It's dragging you into that feeling. For some of you, you've been with us as we've, <laughs> not marched, as we've crawled through Mark's gospel together. Breakneck speed. You're meant to feel this. 
Are you amazed seeing that Jesus is far more unique and special than you had ever thought possible? Is he not more beautiful than we imagined? Is he not worthy of the attention that we gave him? And when we gave it to him, didn't it do something in our hearts? Isn't there a part of us that finds ourselves looking, gawking inside an empty tomb by their side saying, Jesus, this is just too much, too good to be true. That you'd love us like this. That you'd prove your authority and power by emerging from the grave like you did. You see, for some 2,000 years, this moment has echoed throughout creation and humanity, begging the question, my friends, what is your response to Jesus? When you look his direction, how do you feel? Where do you go from here? What do you do now with Jesus? There's one other place where Mark does finish just this same way, and we're done. And it is that story of them on the boat, where it leaves you on the absolute cliffhanger with just the comment that they were very afraid and amazed, the same terms that are used here. You see, Mark's taking your mind and mine back to that boat well, there's a massive storm, and what are people asking? They're saying, do you even care? But now a cross and an empty tomb have answered that with authority, haven't they? He's circling the minds of the readers back to a story where the same verbiage is used, saying you lived in the, tempt- in the, in the tension before of, do you even care, Jesus? But do you see now on this side of a cross and a grave? The answer to humanity's question of God, if you're there and if you care, why aren't you here? He points to a cross and an empty tomb. My friends, I don't know what you're dealing with this week or what you've got on your mind. You might be living in that tension, but look the direction of Jesus. Because he points back to a cross and a tomb saying, there's the answer. If I'm here, present, and if I care, I cared so deeply, look at what I've done for you. Jesus, we together share in the experience of these women who gathered at that tomb that first morning. We share in the emotion, we share in the response that we're dumbstruck by what we've seen of God among us throughout this book. The beauty of you, who you are, and your great commitment to us, your love for us, We're awestruck, Jesus. As we sang earlier this morning, may the things of earth grow strangely dim and the light of your glory and grace. Oh, Jesus, we turn our eyes your direction. Jesus, we thank you for how you have preserved this story, this book for us, that shows us the visible expression of an invisible God. God among us, Thank you for the confidence we have that this is who you are still today. This loving, this gracious, this compassionate. Jesus, we love you and we thank you. And Father, I pray for anyone who's living in that tension, needing to decide this morning what they do with Jesus. As they stand and and gawk in towards an empty tomb with these women, Jesus, I pray right now by your spirit, move in their hearts powerfully drawing them to yourself in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Thank you again for listening to the Olive Branch Christian Fellowship Podcast. For more information about our church, go to olivebranchcf.org.